If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, everyone, to the True Crime Librarian. I am your librarian and host, Ashley. I want to thank you all for joining me today as we tackle one of the fastest rising to fame cases that we've seen in some time. Today, I will introduce to you, or for some, this is merely your journey in the Gabriel Fernandez case. How this flew under the radar for some time is beyond me. It's one of those cases where the details stick with you long after you put it down and it will forever change the way you look at child abuse in the future. With so many details that are involved in this case, today's episode will be one in a multi-part look at the brutal torture and murder of a young 8-year-old boy who wanted nothing more than a mother's love, but instead fell victim to the evil torture that she and her boyfriend created. Warning, this episode contains graphic depictions of child abuse, torture, and strong language that some may find disturbing. If you feel this may be too much for you, please skip this podcast or maybe have someone listening with you or for you. I don't, I've, when I sit down and I look at this case and I'm looking like, where do I need to start with this? I can't seem to pick one place to begin. I mean, I'm pulled in research from one end of the spectrum to the other. I I look at everything from the details that happened in the beginning that should have been flags to the details that happened in the end that shouldn't have happened in the end. Um, Let me introduce you to Gabriel Fernandez. He was born February 20th, 2005 to his mother, Pearl Fernandez. Um, Pearl would later be reported that she did not want Gabriel in the beginning of this pregnancy, but her great uncle or her uncle, Michael Carranza and his partner, David Martinez talked with Pearl and asked her to go ahead and have Gabriel, that they would take him and that they would raise him and that she would not have to be a part of his life if she chose not to be. Um, Later, we find out that her mother, her parents, Robert and Sandra, they had custody of Gabriel, even though the first few years of life, Gabriel lived with Michael and David. And in that home, he knew love. He, he was raised to love his, you know, Michael and David. Uh, they loved him. 
to me, he, it was a happy life. This was the best that he could be. Uh, a few years into his life, around the age of three, Robert and Sandra decided that they would go ahead and have Gabriel move home with them. There are various reasons why um, they chose this that are out there. I'm not going to give you one reason or the other because nothing I have found has really stood out and been like, yes, that's it. Um, and I, I don't think it's fair to Michael or David um, to try and portray any of those rumors is what I'm going to call them because, like I said, I can't confirm them. So I have to go with their, them being rumors of why Sandra and Robert decided to have Gabriel come stay and live with them. So, around the age of three, Robert and Sandra moved Gabriel back into their home, um, where they were the ones that were awarded with custody. Now, here's the getcher. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that just blew me away. Um, at any time, Pearl never completed the termination of her rights as a parent to Gabriel. She never uh, legally gave him up for adoption. She never, the judges never fully awarded her parents sole custody, meaning that, you know, Pearl was unable to come in and t take her rights back as a mother. It was never completed. And for whatever reason, um, that left the custody kind of up in the air, really throwing things uh, for Gabriel's early life. Around um, October 2012, Pearl Fernandez and at her at this time her boyfriend Asario Aguirre, um, they move in with Robert and Sandra, and and Pearl has custody of one of Gabriel's older brother and his older sister. Um, I guess that, that would be one because I found another child. So one of his older brothers and one of his older sisters. They moved in with Robert and Sandra to help get up, get them on their feet so that they could get out and get their own place. Um, and it's, it's hard to say when this happened, but at some point, Pearl and Asario find a place for them to live with the other two children. And, and during that time, they decide if she takes back custody of Gabriel, then they can get more in their welfare assistance that they're getting. And so sometime in October, it is reported by Pearl's parents that they came to pick Gabriel up to take him to a barbecue. And there's a picture of Asario and Pearl at a barbecue uh, that Asario's family was having. And I can't confirm nor deny if that's the barbecue that they all went to. But at whatever case, they went to a barbecue, they took Gabriel. And that would be the last time that Gabriel would ever live with his grandparents. Um, <clears throat> it was at that time that Pearl went ahead and took back custody of Gabriel. He, uh, they, She decided, I, I'm going to raise the kids. And of course... The, the grandparents, they called the authorities and they said that Pearl had kidnapped Gabriel only to learn that in the papers, because paperwork never fully went through, Pearl could, could resume her custodial rights at any time. And so 
this this is going to be the beginning of a very long eight months for this young boy um and it it only gets worse from here i i wish i could say that there was some good times early on but there isn't as we don't know the date that the barbecue occurred um so we're just going to assume sometime in the month of october our very first report of child abuse comes October 30th from Jennifer Garcia. She's Gabriel's teacher. And, and what led to her go ahead and filing a report with DCFS is Gabriel came to her and asked her, he said, is it normal for your mom to spank you with the metal end of the belt? And I, you know, there's different claims about what her response was. Um, and honestly, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to put that out there. If you want to look into it, feel free, please do. Um, it's your knowledge, <clears throat> but I don't feel that any response was needed. I mean, I hearing just that, just that part of it makes my face just twist and confusion because I'm like how could anybody think that's normal but Gabriel asked he asked if it was normal he also asked if it was normal to bleed after being spanked with the metal end of the belt um, and it was at that time that that Miss Garcia decided she was going to make her file with DCFS the next day, Garcia was contacted from by Stephanie Rodriguez. She is the DCF worker that was assigned to her case, or assigned to this case, and the investigation into the allegation that Gabriel is being abused at home. This visit would be one of the only times that social workers would follow their protocol and document on what's called a body chart. And what they, what it is, is just, you would document, hey, there's, there's a cut on his hand or there's a bruise on his leg or whatever. This is required. This is required with every home visit from a DCF work, DCFS worker. You're supposed to go in, you're supposed to talk to the parent, you're supposed to talk to the child, you're supposed to report what you see. Uh, another part that was really overlooked and missed is this, I mean, because this bruise was documented. It was a, is a bruise on the inside of his left thigh, I believe it was. Um, and maybe a little abrasion. Uh, I'm not clear on what all that injury was that entailed. It wasn't fully uh, filled out. <clears throat> so this is the only time. But as we go through this timeline here, you're going to see if they had been keeping up with a body chart, there's no way, no way that DCFS wouldn't have had grounds to remove him from the home. In November of 2012, Garcia noticed Gabriel with several new injuries, including chunks of missing hair, bloody scabs on his head. Gabriel would tell Garcia that his mother was hitting him and punching him in the face. Um, I can't imagine having my hair ripped from my scalp. And then, and then going into public looking like this, I don't know what other people do, but to me as a parent, 
even if my child had fallen and caused an injury similar to this, I would be terrified of people thinking I was capable of doing that. Um, and, and for her to willingly send Gabriel to school looking like this showed just how untouchable Pearl felt. Um, she didn't think that anybody would come in and do anything. They couldn't stop her. This was her home, her child. Um, and, and it just gets worse. Uh, there is a parent-teacher conference between Garcia and Pearl where Garcia begins to tell her how Gabriel is doing in the class, only to be cut off and be told, I do not hit my children. I make them exercise. Later, <clears throat> we're going to learn just what that exercise entails. Um, I encourage you to go look on, on the internet, and, and if you haven't, if you haven't seen her, and look at Pearl Fernandez, the intimidation that is just simply there as she stands there with a blank expression could could only mean that, you know, everybody was intimidated by her. And this includes Jennifer. She was she was noted in saying that the first time that they met, she met Gay, uh, Pearl and Asario at the Meet the Teacher event at their school. She was she didn't want to get on their bad side. I mean, it was it was readily apparent. They sat there um, emotionless. They had no questions. There was no concern with what or how Gabriel would be doing in the new school year. In January of 2013. Further reports were being made to DCFS by Garcia as she was noticing more and more injuries. On one occasion, Gabriel came to school with a swollen face covered in little round bruises. When asked about them, Garcia asked Gabriel. Gabriel told her that he failed. Later, he would admit to Mrs. Garcia that his mother, Pearl, had shot him in the face with a BB gun as he exercised. And this goes back to when she told, uh, when Pearl told Garcia, I don't hit my kids. They, I make them exercise. I don't know what kind of exercises that she's done, but I don't think I've ever had somebody just stand and peg me with a BB gun or a pellet gun or even a Nerf dart gun to try and elect me to consider you know, continue said exercises. This seems beyond humane at this point. <clears throat> and oh, gosh, I can't imagine what that would feel like to have that being said to me. It's almost unreal. There would be two other occasions where Gabriel asked if she could, quote, call that lady. This would later prove unhelpful as each time that lady referencing to Stephanie, would come to Gabriel's home, he would come to school with more injuries. With each call by Garcia, the social worker would begin to distance herself by not returning the phone calls. Garcia then turns to services offered by the school. She's going to try and help Gabriel in any way she can. Um, at the, the injuries are just getting worse as he comes to school. He's starting to come to school in girls' clothing, um, and if he's caught changing into his own clothing, that means further abuse when he gets home by his mother. He's coming to school with new marks on him. And they're not marks that are easily 
hidden. I mean, they're right there on his face. They're on his arms. They're on his legs. She doesn't even try to hide the abuse. So she turned, Garcia turns to the school to see what they can do. And um, she was told by administration, there were no services we could offer at this time. However, they did give her a pamphlet to send home with Gabriel. But Garcia feared that if she sent that home to Pearl, it would only cause more abuse to Gabriel in the end. So she threw it in the trash. And I can't blame her. I would too. I mean, if that if you think that's going to help what's going on here, I mean, I can imagine what she is telling these administrations and telling them on, you know, this is what this child looks like. This is what he is telling me that is going on at home. And and then he simply sat back and say, no, there's nothing we can do. This is beyond what we can do. <sighs> Garcia would later admit during Osario's trial that she had DCFS on speed dial. That's how many times this woman had picked up the phone and called that hotline and was like, hey, I have a student in my class that, I mean, it is just readily apparent. He is being abused. It's just beyond me. How, how could you ignore the cries for help from her? And, and you know, teachers are underpaid and they're, you know, they're pushed to their max. They're, they're using their own money to buy school supplies and to furnish their classrooms. They already have a lot on their plate. Uh, and then to turn around and say, well, no, you can't really help here. This is this beyond your scope. Our children, when we send them to school, these children become these teachers, other children. You know what I mean? Like they, they feel when your kids feel sad and they're excited when your kids get you know excited about learning or excited that they did well in something your teachers for your children they they feel those emotions with your child and so for her to watch Gabriel just deteriorate in front of her had to be just the hardest and most emotionally stressful time in her life and then I mean we're not even to the worst we're not even there um in April the last report by Garcia would be filed this time uh the findings would be documenting by DCFS that quote no safety threats at this time based on currently available information there are no children likely to be in immediate or serious harm end quote I don't know what home they were looking into, but I don't think it was Pearl's home. Uh, I, I mean, you read, you read that Gabriel, you know, he didn't have any toys. The only clothes that were in his closet were two dresses. Uh, you could see that Gabriel just was not a part of this home. I mean, the other children, there was clothes and there was toys and they had friends and they lived to be seemingly normal. I mean, yeah, they were watching what was going on to Gabriel at home. But if they spoke out, would it, would the abuse turn to them? I could only imagine that fear of, you know, do I say something? What if I say something and she shoots me in the face with a BB gun? It didn't look like it felt good for Gabriel. I sure as heck don't want to go through it. And I can't blame them because they're children. 
as adults are supposed to be there. We're supposed to, we're supposed to take care of them. And I mean, I hear this a lot in podcasts that I've seen about Gabriel Fernandez and a lot of documentaries and it's see something, say something. But we live in a generation where we see something, we tend to, you know, avert our eyes and look away. But, you know, I would like to think many of you listening and myself included would see Gabriel's condition and and want to do something. But then you have to look at Pearl and and just the intimidation that rolled off of her. I think that would cause more people to shy away, including her own children. It just, you know, it's hard to say what you would do in a situation like this. It's hard to go about or, you know, materialize. This is what I would do. This, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, this is what I'd have done. And, you know, knowing what I know now, if I'd have ran across them, there was no way Gabriel would ever go home with them again. They would, they would have to literally kill me or put me in jail. And at that point, I would expect my husband and my family to stand up for what I could no longer stand up for. There's no way. But, you know, in a different time, not knowing what I know, because hindsight's always twenty twenty, you can't guarantee that. You can't say, this is what I do. Because you don't know. You just don't. And I wish we felt more comfortable when you see a mother yank a child uh, in the store to be like, I, hey, wait a minute. You know, you're you're an adult. And, you know, this is a child. You outweigh him or her significantly. You're taller. You're bigger built. You have better muscles. They're frail. They're still growing. I mean, most children, when they suffer a break, it's called a green fracture. And the reason it's called that is because imagine taking a tree limb off uh, a very healthy living tree and you try to break it. It doesn't snap in half. It splinters. And, and just kind of lifts in different areas. Kids' bones work the same way because they are so malleable or flexible. They don't break in a snap like an adult's bones would. They, they splinter. And that makes it very hard to, to get them to heal correctly in the long run. Because, you know, you just don't think about these things. So the injuries that you could cause just by just by grabbing the arm and pulling are more than you could ever fathom you would in an adult. April 26, 2013, Arturo Martinez, a security guard at the DPSS, also known as the Department of Public Social Services, Gaines office in Palmdale, California. He would recognize well I guess not recognize but he would see Pearl come in and she had these kids with her and Gabriel is one of them and Arturo I mean his interview is just interesting to watch um you know everybody knows that Netflix has a docuseries out called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez and if you've been following this case at all you've probably turned to this docuseries and watched it at least once or you're at least working on it. Arturo is interviewed during this pod or during this docuseries and you know you just to watch him you're like I wish I could be as strong as he was because he didn't know Pearl he didn't know um 
a Gary. He didn't know Gabriel. He didn't know this family. This was a, he was working his job like he did every other day of the week. And in comes this lady who's intimidating with her children. And then he gets to looking at the little kid, the, the youngest, I would say. And he sees just the abuse, the amount. This is not him playing roughly with his brothers. This isn't he got beat up by some big kids in the neighborhood. This is a, this is something somebody is doing to him that is a lot bigger than him. He says that when Pearl showed up to file public assistance paperwork with Gabriel and two other boys and a girl, Arturo noticed the back left side of Gabriel's head. And in this position, there were 17 to 23 cigarette burns. Purple greenish bruises surrounded his eyes. When Gabriel walked past Arturo's desk, that is when Gabriel would kind of rub his wrist with the other hand and, and kind of be like, hey, look at this. Look, look at what's going on. And he would see ligature marks. He could, this kid was being tied up. And, and he goes on to, quote, say, on a scale of 1 to 10, he was a 20. Quote, his body wasn't, was talking, yelling. He didn't really have to say anything. It was all over his body, screaming for help. End quote. Arturo, with the help of the receptionist, there was a receptionist that wasn't typically the receptionist in the in the lobby during that time she was filling in. This is a person who had worked that um, job title before, but just filling in because they had someone, you know, given a day off, which we all do. We all need it. Um, I look forward to mine. I know most of you look forward to yours as well. We, it just happens. So, you know, after Gabriel and Pearl, they walk out of the lobby and go into their interview, or what I'm assuming is the interview, and Arturo and this lady, uh, they get to talking, and she's like, man, you know, that kid looks, looks dirty. And Arturo looks at her kind of like, are you, are you crazy? And he's like, no, this kid's beat up. This kid's being abused. And it, she didn't want to admit what she thought she saw. Um, she would later go to her supervisor on how to handle this situation with Gabriel coming in looking like this. And they uh, basically told her, we're not going to pay you overtime, so don't touch it. We're not going to do anything. And when you, when you work in something like that, you work with the HIPAA um, laws. You're not allowed to give away somebody's personal information. That's against the law. I mean, HIPAA states that very plainly, you know. So Arturo wanted to do something, but as a security guard, you're just sitting there. You don't have access to these people's person, uh, personal information, but she did. And um, with her help, Arturo got got their home address and he called 911. Uh, the dispatcher would tell him later that this is not an emergency and he needed to call the non-emergent line. You know, most of us probably would have been like, ah, I tried. Hopefully not when you see somebody this badly abused, but most of us would have been like, ah, I tried. Uh, he, he wasn't satisfied with that. So he found the non-emergent lumber and he called and he told the LA County Sheriff's office 
what he saw on Gabriel. He, uh, he reported, you know, what this kid looked like when he came in through the lobby and the response by the dispatcher to this report just blows me away. Um, and I don't know they're trained to not show emotion. I get that. I get that. But this is just something, if somebody would have called me in my mind, this would not have been my response. Quote, we'll see what we can do. End quote. That just, that just blows me away. Sometime in the beginning of May, Gabriel would attend his last day at school without even knowing. School officials would send the L.A. County Sheriff's Office out to the address that they had on file, um, only to find out that was no longer their address. Uh, Garcia would finally learn through administration that they got a hold of Pearl, and Pearl told them that Gabriel would not be coming back to school, that he had moved with his grandparents to Texas. Once this information was relayed to Garcia, she, she almost had relief. He was out of that home. He was away from that situation. Things would get better for him. Only to find out within a week, Gabriel Fernandez would be dead. I'm going to go ahead and give out another warning here um, before we get started on the second half of the podcast. What is described next may be hard for some to hear. There will be graphic detail as to the abuse Gabriel has suffered from the last eight months in his mother's care. If you feel as though any of this may be too graphic, please stop here and you can pick up next week with the rest of the story. Um, I will go ahead and do a, a pre-warning for next week. This whole case um, involves graphic details of abuse, and, and it's definitely hard to hear. When I first started researching this case, I got to this point, and I had to stop. I had to... I had to walk away from it. Um, it was too much. And uh, there's not many cases out there that I've researched that has touched me in the way that Gabriel's case has. And I don't typically get overly emotional when looking at the forensics, but um, this is the exception. May 22, 2013 is the night of the fatal beating. It is reported that when Asario Aguirre gets home from work that night, Pearl tells him that Gabriel had asked her, quote, Why do you stay with him if he hurts you? End quote. This statement enrages Asario leading up to the beating. Pearl's daughter was in Pearl in, a, in Asario's bedroom. When they brought Gabriel in, and she testifies that they hit 
punched, kicked, and ridiculed the boy. It is stated in in various other places <clears throat> that Pearl and Asario believed that Gabriel was gay. Now, most eight-year-old boys are very in touch with their emotional side. If they, they get sad, they cry. If they're happy, they're giddy. Um, excitement. You, I mean, think of a typical eight-year-old boy. To me, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's gay. And even if he was gay or he was leaning towards that way of life, it's irrelevant. Um, it doesn't matter. It should not have mattered. Um, but for Pearl and Asario, it was a reason. And to them, they had to have an excuse for why they were doing what they were doing to um, Gabriel. Uh, Pearl's daughter testifies that Aguirre knocks the wind out of Gabriel, causing him to collapse to the floor. Gabriel never gets back up. At this point, it gets quiet, uh, and Pearl comes out of the bedroom, and she's scared and a little frantic, telling the older brother of Gabriel to make up a story because she was going to call the paramedics. Um, Asario picks Gabriel up and puts him in the shower. It is reported by the children that he throws Gabriel into the shower, and I don't think that really means or makes a difference other than it just causes more injuries. <clears throat> Again, they yell at him to wake up or to get up. And when he doesn't, at this point, Pearl calls 911 and tells them that her son is not breathing. Um, now, I've listened to those 911 calls several times, and to me, it sounds like Pearl hangs up after she tells the dispatcher that her son isn't breathing and they need to send paramedics, it sounds as if the call goes dead. Now, whether the call goes dead or she's simply transferring the phone to Asario, either way, we get a recording of Asario on the phone talking to dispatchers and he is telling them that his son was playing with his other son and Gabriel fell and hit his head on the cabinet and now he's not breathing. So the dispatcher decides to, or follows protocol, basically, and instructs um, Asario how to perform CPR. Now, if you have ever performed CPR or seen somebody perform CPR, this takes a lot of energy. This is an exhausting thing to do. I mean, um... You're, you're having to hold a steady beat of compressions that would mimic the beat of the heart. And if the patient isn't breathing, you have to give two breaths. Now, the American Heart Association doesn't necessarily say that those two breaths make a difference. However, those two breaths adds oxygen into the blood. And as you compress, that blood is flowing out to other parts of the body, which will go and in, in hopes will go to the brain and prevent any deficits that could have happened due to lack of oxygen. Again, I've, I've listened to this 911 tape, uh, and to me, it does not sound like he is a person who is actively giving CPR. Now, he could be over there just kind of pushing down here and there, 
It, I don't know. But first responders get there, and it's not documented whether or not that uh, Osario is giving CPR to Gabriel. And at this point, I guess it really doesn't matter. Now we have trained professionals in the home. They um, get us, they ask Osario if he can pick Gabriel up and bring it into the living room because their hands are full. They have all their gear with them. And when they go into a home that's seeking medical attention, they never know what they're going to come into. They never know what they're going to need. So they grab the major necessities and take it with them. That way it's readily available right there if they need it. And the first responders start resuscitating Gabriel. And they get him to a point where they feel comfortable transporting him in the ambulance to the hospital. And as they take him down the stairs and get him in the back of the ambulance, Pearl and Osario are not displaying typical behaviors that a parent would display when their child is unconscious and not breathing and coding. Their, their concern isn't if Gabriel is okay. Their concerns are other things. Pearl makes it very known that she does not want her cats left in the house locked in a cage. And Osario made sure to point out to the first responders that, quote, Gabriel is gay and he is a liar. He lies about everything, end quote. And, and that's, you know, I don't know what his thinking was right there. I don't know. Gabriel's not awake. He's not responsive. There is, if there's a heartbeat, it's very faint and there. It's highly concerned. This is an emergency. This is an emergency like a no other emergency. And in his mind, which I don't want to be in because that is an evil dark corner that I don't want to be a part of. And psychology, you, you tend to dive into the mind of somebody else. But this is a mind that I would rather be far away from. Anyhow, he, he, he decides that information is pertinent at that point. The first responders, they, they kind of note it in the back of their head, but they, I mean, their attention is focused elsewhere. So they transport Gabriel from his home in Palmdale, California, and they call over to the ER and ER nurse Christine Estes is the one that is working the ambulance bay and in part of her duties as being the ambulance bay nurse is to chart what other staff members are performing on patients because we want our doctors right there doing everything they can in that moment not do something chart it do something else chart it but it's gotten to the point where we have to have that paper trail we have to go back and be like okay so these meds were given this is the protocol they followed, etc. So they have to have somebody doing it. And, and unfortunately for Christine, this night would forever haunt her. Paramedics radio in on the way to the ER stating that they have an unresponsive child coming in and that this is a code three. For this hospital, code three from the paramedics means the highest level of an emergency. The hospital then shifts to their protocol 
and on standby at the hospital waiting for the paramedics are ER doctors, the nurses, surgeons. We have a respiratory therapist standing by just in case there needs to be intubation. Um, an OR is ready and on standby if there is an emergency where surgery is required. They've notified the blood bank and the lab and let them know that they have a patient that is priority. That way we have blood on, we have some blood ready to go. If labs are performed, we need those back as soon as possible. They also call over to imaging and let them know they are going to need a CT scan possibly with MRI. CT is faster, no matter how you look at that. It's just a faster way of seeing what's going on. That doesn't rule out that MRIs aren't good, but CT is going to give us a quicker glance at what's going on in the inside. Paramedics were able to um, get Gabriel's pulses back en route to the hospital, and once treatment was transferred from the first responders over to the ER staff, uh, Gabriel, go he codes again. At this point, ER staff pushes cardiac meds, and they also notice that his core body temperature is low, so they begin warming measures. His hemoglobin shows to be low, and blood is hung and probably rapidly transfused. Uh, once he's stable enough, they get him up to CT for scans, and unfortunately, co he codes again. Staff again stabilize Gabriel, and they begin calling out the injuries they're noting on his body to Christine. And in this time, everything is going by so fast that they don't really have a time, a chance to sit still and actually look at the picture in this hole. But Christine is, as she's documenting what they're calling out. I mean, she's seeing these injuries, and she can't believe what they're saying they're finding on this child. I mean, this is, this is an eight-year-old little boy. There's not a lot of skin surface there, but the injuries keep coming and coming and coming. We're going to start at the head and work our way down. There are areas of traumatic alopecia, meaning chunks of his hair were ripped from the scalp. There's a swollen area on the top of his head. There's also a dep depressed skull fracture um, with crepitus. Crepitus is kind of like a rice crispy type feeling, very crunchy. Uh, there's a subglial hematoma where the blood has accumulated between the scalp and the skull. And usually we see this in a baby skull and sometimes in a children's skull. And the reason this is, is because their bones are still very, uh, they can move, they can shift, they have give. Like we were talking about earlier with the green fracture, there's, they're malleable. And so they can, once the skull bends enough, blood can get in between those two surfaces. Now, <clears throat> This is, this is not common, um, and you have to think back to like when you take your kids to the doctor and they are checking the soft spots. They're, they're looking to see how the skull is fusing together, because by the time you're adult, all those different sections of your skull have fused together, and that's as big as your head is ever going to be. But as you're growing, those things need to be able to expand to make room. They also find a large scab from an abrasion on the top of 
his head. There's an irregular abrasion on his upper forehead, an abrasion on the right lateral cheekbone with multiple linear marks. There's an abrasion to the bridge of his nose. He has a swollen left eye with bruising. There's an abrasion and dead skin on the left cheekbone uh, closer to that eye area. There's diffused bruising on the entire left side of his face. Uh, there's an abrasion near his mouth, which they believe is a cigarette burn. There are two partially healed BB gun wounds on the left lower cheek. Left to right of his neck, is the skin is missing. He has dermal excoriation. Um, and it's kind of like the skin was peeled off or picked off. Uh, it's also red and inflamed. He has missing teeth. He has jagged, broken teeth, um, and they are unable to fully view Gabriel's mouth. Uh, there are multiple small circular wounds. Some are partially healed on his chest, back, and midsection. Skin wounds scatter over his upper chest are a combination of BB wounds or bruising from BB guns and, and cigarette uh, burns. They find a BB bullet in his left lung. There are whip marks that look like they came from a cord. There is a strange cut above his penis. Now, I've seen where others have said that this, is, this cut comes from them trying to remove Gabriel's penis. I have not found any information that confirms that's what that cut means. Um, you can deduce from that whatever you would like, but just know that's not a confirmation. There's a BB wound in his groin. <clears throat> on his left forearm, there's an abrasion. On both of his wrists, he has purple uh, ligature marks. His hands, almost every single one of his fingers are injured, whether they are swollen, abrased, bruised, uh, possibly broken. On his left palm, there appears to be a burn mark. There's a burn mark on his lower left leg that is kind of in the shape of a spoon. They think they warmed up a spoon and stuck it to his leg. Both of his knees are swollen. They ha he has abrasions on the top of his feet as though he was being dragged. His feet and toes are swollen. And again, there's dark purple ligature marks on his ankle. Overall, the staff notes that there are multiple cigarette marks covering his body. They are all in various stages of healing, some fresh and some nearly healed, some scarred. There's bruising covering his body, also in various stages of healing. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> this is not everything. I mean, you have 20 reports just from the teacher in this last eight months of the amount of abuse that is that comes from the home <clears throat> the kids report at some point that Asario puts Gabriel in the bathtub and sprays him with mace and when Gabriel goes back to school right there towards the end um 
they took they did a Mother's Day gift and part of that was taking a picture holding the letter M and holding the letter O and then making a silly face for the last M. Um, most mothers look forward to the Mother Day gift that their children make at school and Gabriel was so excited to to make something for his mother in hopes that she would love him. And in those pictures, sadly, you can see his eyes swollen and his really red. You can see his hands are tore up. He has bruising all over his face. He's got missing hair. He has abrasions and cuts just everywhere. And it's in those, it's in that photo <clears throat> or those photos that you can really kind of see Gabriel's love for his mother. Even though this is what he looks like, he is smiling. Um, and you can just feel that he's excited to make this for Pearl. Um, maybe this will show her he does love her and maybe she will love him in return. Unfortunately, <clears throat> Christine Estes had to document all of these wounds shortly after these photographs were taken. And she is quoted to saying, once, once the ER staff um, was able to take a moment and Gabriel's care was transferred over to the Children's Hospital of L.A., um, they transferred him to their facility and the staff was able to take a step back out of the chaos and really view and process what they had just handled and this isn't this wasn't a trauma of, of a car accident or or you know a fall down a major ravine or I mean you couldn't even say this was a trauma due to um, somebody getting mugged or robbed this was a trauma room that was just littered just littered with supplies because when you're going through something like that you you just get the package off and throw it on the floor we'll clean it later that's how they think because i mean at that moment you have to get your patient to a point where we can slow things down and look at them but for gabriel that moment never really came once the care was transferred over to children's hospital of los angeles a um, brain function test was administered that night to see what kind of uh, deficits would be due to the lack of oxygen to his brain as he was trying to be resuscitated. And it's at that point that they see that he's not breathing on his own, so they hope with him being in the coma, things can heal and they can reevaluate him at a later date. So on May 22nd, of 2013 Gabriel is in a coma in the care of the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles it's on May 23rd of 2013 that Isario goes under or has his first interview with detective Elliot Irby and in this interview Isario admits to spanking Gabriel for questioning Pearl being with him, but he doesn't go too much further. 
And Irby knows just by looking at that child, that's not a spanking. That's a beating. Osario will go on to admit later that he was enraged by Gabriel's questioning of the relationship to the point where he hit him ten times, but he lost count after those ten times. Um, it's never noted that he says he hit him ten times in a specific location. He just says, I hit him ten times. I think I lost count. Um, later, it's reported him, uh, Isario, saying that he hit Gabriel ten times in the head and another twenty times in the body. Um Again, possibly losing count. Um, Detective Irby was not prepared for what Osario begins to admit to. Um, Osario uh, never intended for it to go this far. However, when you look at all of the evidence from the past eight months, one could deduce that eventually death would be the outcome. But Osario's defense says he never intended for Gabriel to die. On May 24th of 2013, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles go ahead and perform Gabriel's sec second brain functioning test. The findings of this test lead to the family um, deciding to take him off of child of life support at this time. Um, there's no, there's, it is highly unlikely that Gabriel was ever going to wake up. And if he did wake up, there would be severe, severe deficits due to the amount of brain swelling and the blood loss that Gabriel would have many functionings of his body that no longer worked. Um, but it is on May 24th of 2013, they declared Gabriel dead. Now, at this point, the body is turned over to the L.A. County Coroner's Office so that an autopsy can be performed. Dr. James Kemp Ryby of uh, the deputy coroner of L.A. County is the one who receives uh, Gabriel's body. In addition to all of the external wounds that we talked about that were being called out to Christine as she charted in the ER, Dr. Irby is able to come in and take a closer look at this. Or Dr. Ryby, um, sorry, excuse me. He notes additional injuries, which, again, I'm not sure if this is all of the injuries. Um, and some of these, some of those are left out. And detectives do things like that to prevent people from being a confessor to a crime that they weren't. Because there are people out there that, like, I did it, and they were, you know nowhere near the crime scene the night of the murder or whatever. So 
you don't always get the whole story. And that's more for investigative purposes. You want to make sure that if somebody gives you one of those details that were never released, you, you're like, okay, I'm in the presence of a person who, who was at this crime scene at the very least and could possibly be the perpetrator. Um, but as we know, Asario and Pearl were both a part of this investigation and there was no doubt that nobody else in that home broke in <clears throat> and beat Gabriel to death. They were taken into custody and coroner's findings um, seem to give the detectives and investigators the information they needed in order to charge both Asario and Pearl with first-degree murder with the special circumstance of allegation of intentional murder by torture. Uh, Dr. Ravi finds a, uh, multiple fractures inside of Gabriel's body, all at different stages of healing. Gabriel's thymus gland. Okay, so this is the gland that is very important to your body. It helps you fight off um, infections. It sends out your T cells, which are your fighter cells. They're good things to help keep keep your your body running as it normally should. But in the case of Gabriel, um, when Dr. Ribey went to look for the thymus gland, he almost overlooked it because it was so shriveled that it was nowhere close to what it should, the size it should have been. And with this being shriveled and small, Dr. Ribey was able to give investigators the reason that the, the re, it does this under stress. Think about it. Okay, so let's let's think about this for a second. When you're going through either physical or emotional stress in your life, and we go back to that adage, when it rains, it pours, and you catch a cold, and you're like, well, this is all I need. I'm dealing with this, and now I have a cold. That's because the stress has lowered your immune system, which allowed whatever virus or bacteria in to just take over. And for Gabriel, he had no immune system at this point because the amount of stress had shriveled it so small that I'm not even sure he would have ever been able to recuperate had he lived. Um, there were cuts found along his liver, along with a hematoma, which is kind of like a blood clot, kind of bruise kind of thing. Um, Gabriel had lung disease as well. He's eight years old. What eight year old do you know has lung disease? And it's not, it's not reported as to why he has lung disease, but this goes in hand with the rib fractures at the various stages of healing. The lungs are encased in the sac along with your heart and inside that sac or along the outer edges of that sac are nerve endings. And so when you breathe, that sac expands with your lungs. And when you let it out, it shrivels back up with your lungs. It's, it's a, it goes in and out. Well, when you have a broken rib and it's grinding 
And those two points that don't normally hit a nerve ending site start hitting that, it hurts. It hurts to breathe. It hurts to cough. It hurts to laugh. It hurts to sneeze. Gabriel was in pain every time he took a breath. And then you add in lung disease on top of that. Not only does it hurt to take a breath, but it's hard. You're not getting good breaths in with those two combinations. Gabriel was four foot one, 59 pounds. Asario stood six foot two, 270 pounds. That is nearly, what, four times, five times Gabriel's weight? He is five times bigger than Gabriel. And the amount of muscle in a person that large puts how much force comes behind an enraged feeding. They also opened up Gabriel's stomach and inside Dr. Riley found this like gritty sand-like material and so when forensics would later evaluate this material and compare it to the cat litter from the, um, I'm not sure if it was cat litter from the house or just cat litter in general, but they couldn't tell the two apart, which confirmed that that sand-like gritty material found in Gabriel's stomach was cat litter. Pearl had seven cats in the house. Obviously, there was cat litter. But what you don't know until the children testify, not only was Gabriel forced to eat the cat litter, he was forced to eat cat feces. This would have licked vomiting from Gabriel. And Gabriel's other, older brother would testify that if he vomited, he had to eat the vomit. It's almost like they were angry that his body responded in that way. And for Gabriel, that's not a conscious thing that happens. You know, I'm sure he, after the first time he vomited and had to eat it, he was like, I don't want to ever vomit again. But his body naturally was like, no, this is not, get this out. This is not good for us. And he would vomit. Dr. Riby would go on to report that there was no fat stores. Um, Gabriel, we all have fat. I mean, just think about it. You have fat you don't want to have. Um, Gabriel had none. This, this is proof that there's malnutrition. And w this is a topic that's always on debate, you know, and families that come from a low socioeconomic area, They'd, their children tend to rely on school to give them a hot meal during the day. And in my state, all kids get free breakfast. And then they have to pay for lunch unless you qualify, qualify part of the uh, reduced free lunches. <clears throat> um, and for many, many children, this is a meal that they highly depend on. And in Gabriel's case... <clears throat> eating kitty litter is not giving him the protein or the vitamins 
or the carbohydrates or the sugars he needs for his body to grow. Um, and we were talking back at the end, at the beginning of May, that was one of the last times that Gabriel went to school. So he went two weeks without, um, a hot meal. I don't, we, we don't know what Pearl was feeding him, but I mean, it was reported that he ate kitty litter and she made him eat old and expired food. It was, it was just, they robbed him every which way they could. Dr. Rivey would go on to testify, quote, I have never seen this many skin injuries on one child. The autopsy took him two days. That is highly unusual. But in order to document each and every injury found on Gabriel, it took Dr. Rivey two days to go over this child's body. Two. Wrapping up today's podcast, I want to thank you all for joining me today. And I wish I could say that we've made it through the hardest part of this case. But those of you who have been following know that's simply not true. The more you look, the more you find, and the more shocking this case becomes. I want to invite you to join me next week for part two of the Gabriel Fernandez case. If you're new to my channel, please be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an upload in the future. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The True Crime Librarian or subscribe to my YouTube channel and I'll put the link in the description. If you have any cases that you want to hear me talk about or research, feel free to email me at thetruecrimelibrarian at gmail.com. I have a little one-liner to leave you with today. Curiosity may have killed the cat, but it's the satisfaction that brought it back. Until next time. <laughs>